Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1 through verse 19. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son And laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, we come before your word with reverence and with awe. Knowing, Lord, that we do not deserve to receive your word from you. Lord, if you had not revealed yourself to us in the sacred scriptures and your way of redemption, we would have never known it. And so, Lord, we come knowing that we are not deserving of receiving it from you. But, Lord, we come eagerly and confidently 
Because you have called us to yourself and you have qualified us to receive it in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we acknowledge together this morning that we desperately need to hear from you. So draw near to us now, we pray. Send grace to us, Lord, through the means that you have appointed, praying, the reading of scripture, the proclamation of your gospel, and the distribution of the sacraments, Lord. And may you be high and lifted up in the midst of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name, and therefore, confidently. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our Advent series in which we're doing our best to give you a biblical theology, a biblical understanding of the the story of, of Scripture, how it unfolds, and how it finds its culmination in the first Advent or the first coming of Jesus. And so far, we've done a really quick overview, if you haven't been with us, of, through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. We've taken a look at creation, we've taken a look at the fall, and then we saw how God um, kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, but even in his judgment, he still promised that he would send a promised seed, an offspring of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent and make all things new. And what we see in the chapters following Genesis chapter 3 is that because of the fall, the world is now a very ugly place. It's a very ugly place. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we see that the first murder is committed with Cain killing Abel because he's jealous that God receives Abel's gift but not Cain's. In chapters 5 through 10 of Genesis, we see that the world becomes so wicked and corrupt That God judges the whole earth in a flood, wiping out everyone, only sparing Noah and his family. And then in chapter 11, we see that mankind pridefully seeks to build a tower high above the heavens so that everyone can know how awesome and great they are. And we see that God draws near and judges them and confuses their language and scatters them throughout the face of the earth. So again and again, what we're seeing is this cycle in which mankind is is on this downward tailspin. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. uh, Man is sinning, God is judging, and then even in the midst of his judgment, though, he's still being gracious. But the problem is, up to this point in Genesis, things haven't gotten any better. Where's the promised seed who will crush the head of the serpent? Why hasn't he come yet? And not only are things not getting better, they seem to be getting worse and worse. Mankind is becoming more corrupt, more wicked. So what hope is there? How can we know that God is going to keep his promise given how the story has unfolded up to this point? And you know, if we're honest with ourselves and we look at our own lives, we can find ourselves asking the same question today, can't we? You ever find yourself asking, how can I know that God will keep his promises to me? My guess is that some of you are probably struggling with that very question as you sit there this morning. Because I know that some of you can't find work right now. And as hard as you look, nothing seems to turn up. But the bills keep coming and piling up. And so you find yourself asking, how can I know God will keep his promises? When the economy is this bad and when I can't find a job, I know that for some of you, your marriages are failing. They're falling apart. 
And after years and years of hurt and bitterness, no matter how hard you both seem to try, things don't get any better. And so you find yourself asking, how can I know God will keep his promises when my marriage is this bad? I know some of you are struggling with indwelling sin. Hopefully all of you are struggling against indwelling sin. But for those of you in particular, every day seems to be a battle over the same sin struggle. And it feels like every day you're losing that battle. And no matter what you try, you don't seem to change. Nothing seems to work. And as you look at the remaining sin in your life, you wonder, how can I know that God will keep his promises to me when I'm this sinful? How can I know God will be faithful when I've been so faithless? I know some of you are facing the prospect of the death of a loved one. I just got off the phone with someone this morning who was telling me that he's got a friend who's, whose son, young son, is, is potentially going to pass away. Some of you are even facing the prospect of your own death. And even though you assure yourself with the promises of God's word, you're still afraid. You still don't want to leave behind your loved ones and this world. And so you wonder, how can I know that God will keep his promises when death is so near and I am so afraid? And I want you to know this isn't a question that's unique to us. It isn't a question that's unique to our time. It's a question that God, God's people have struggled with for centuries. As a matter of fact, it's the question that the Israelites were asking themselves as they approached the promised land for the second time. If you recall, in the previous sermons, we've talked about how the book of Genesis was most likely written to the Israelites when they're trying to attempt to enter the promised land for the second time. And if you recall, the first time that they tried to enter, they weren't allowed to do it, were they? Because of their unbelief, not believing that God would uh, deliver the inhabitants of the land who were extremely large and well-fortified into their hands, God said, that's it, you guys are going to go wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this whole generation gets wiped out. And Moses, you're not going to be able to take them in either. And then I'm going to raise up Joshua, and he'll take the next generation. And so here they are at the gates of the promised land, and guess what? They're asking themselves, how can we know that God is going to keep his promises? Because he sure didn't seem to keep the promise he made to the previous generation. They're all lying out in the wilderness as dead carcasses. How do we know we're not going to end up the same way? How can we know that God will keep his promise? See, they were asking the exact same question that we find ourselves asking today. And the book of Genesis was written to give the Israelites assurance that God would keep all of his promises. And it was written to give us the exact same hope. Which is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do a massive overview of the life of someone who struggled again and again to believe the promises of God. We're going to look at the life of Abraham. And I'll warn you in advance, if you know anything about the life of Abraham, it covers a lot of scripture, 10 chapters or so. We're not going to be able to cover all of that in depth. So we're just going to hit the high points of his life. But as we look at Abraham, I want us to see three movements 
in his life that answer the question, how can we know God will keep his promises? Three movements in the life of Abraham that answer the question, how can we know God will keep his promises? We'll take a look at the call, the covenant, and the sacrifice. So first, let's look at the call. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Flip backwards there to Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, excuse me, getting ahead of myself, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now just as a side note, um, in the future, we're covering a lot of scripture here. Abram becomes Abraham. God changes his name for reasons we don't have time to get in this morning. And Sarai becomes Sarah. So if you see those names pop up, they're the same people. But the first thing that we need to notice here about Abraham is the, his lineage. Earlier in chapter 11, we're told that Abraham is of the line of Shem. And Shem, if you remember, is one of the three sons of Noah. And of his three sons, Shem is the one who received the most blessing, the bulk of the blessing from Noah. So Shem was the chosen seed through whom the promised seed would come. And Abraham is one of his descendants. So Abraham is part of the line of the promised seed. Now the problem was that Abraham's father Terah was from Ur of the Chaldeans. And Ur was an epicenter of pagan worship. More specifically, they participated in lunar worship, the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. In fact, Terah's name actually means moon. So what we have here is the line of the promised seed, the promised offspring, not worshiping God. The promised line is worshiping idols. They've abandoned the worship of the one true God. And you say, how do you know that, Jason? Well, the reason we know that is because if we jump forward to Joshua chapter 24 in verse 3, you don't have to turn there unless you want to. I'll read it to you. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, do you understand just how devastating this is? From a human standpoint, the line of the promised seed has ended. The line has forgotten God. How is God going to keep his promise if the line has forgotten who he even is? This is a huge problem. 
I mean, as bad as things were earlier on in Genesis, at least there were still those who were calling on the name of the Lord. But now even that's gone. And you see, it's in the midst of this low point in human history, the darkest of days, when it seems like there's no hope for God's promise that God comes to Abraham and speaks to him. God calls Abraham And what God tells him is that he is going to renew the line of the promised seed through him. God tells Abraham, I will make you a great nation and your name will be great and I will restore my blessing to all the families of the earth through you, Abraham. And we need to slow it down here because if you're anything like me, you've heard this story so many times. And so it's easy to take what's going on here for granted. Because what we have here is amazing. What we have here is the perfect promise of God. And the reason we know that this is the perfect promise of God is because God promises Abraham seven things. Did you notice that? Seven things. God promises Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Seven promises. Now, what's the significance of that? If you know anything about Hebrew literature, the number seven is the number for completeness or perfection. And so what God is telling Abraham here is, this is my perfect and complete promise. And did you notice something else? How many times does God use the word bless or blessing when he's calling Abraham, when he's giving him these promises. God uses those words, now listen to this, five times, either bless or blessing. And do you know how many times God speaks curses in Genesis after the fall? Five times. He pronounces five curses. So do you see what's going on here? God is saying that through Abraham, he is going to cancel out the five curses that he pronounced on all creation after the fall. And the way that he's going to do that is by giving these five blessings to Abraham. And through Abraham's line, those blessings would be given to all the nations, to all of creation. You see how amazing this is? This is the gospel. That's what this is. And you see, that's why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So here we have this incredible promise. And God is saying that it's going to come about through Abraham. But we have to ask ourselves, why did God call Abraham? Why did God choose this specific man named Abraham? Was it because Abraham was looking for God? No. What was Abraham up to when God called him to himself? He's worshiping false idols. Was it because God thought Abraham would be a good candidate for having lots of kids, plentiful offspring? No. Look at verse 30 of chapter 11. What does it say about Abraham's wife? Now Sarai, or Sarah, was barren. She had no children. Not only did Sarah have no kids, she was unable to have kids, so she wouldn't be able to in the future. You see, the Bible gives us plenty of reasons for why God should not have chosen Abraham. And yet that's still who he called. He chose a sinful, lost, 
spiritually dead idol worshiper with a barren wife to shower these incredible blessings upon. Now why? Why did he do that? The Bible is abundantly clear that God chose Abraham to show that the call of God is not based on the one who is being called, Abraham, but instead it's based on the one who is doing the calling, God. You see, God's call is a gracious call. Abraham doesn't deserve to receive these promises. If God gave Abraham what he deserved, he would have sent him straight to hell. But instead, God draws near and is gracious and he calls Abraham and he blesses him. So how does that apply to us? How does this help us under, come to understand how we can know that God will keep his promises to us? Because God's call in our lives is gracious. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't buy it. You can't steal it. Which also means that once God gives it to you, you can't, you can't lose it. He won't ever take it back. You see, when God calls you to himself, he calls you to himself for good, for keeps, forever. So let me ask you, Sovereign Grace, do you know the security of resting in God's call on your life? Because one of the ways that you can know that God will keep his promises to you is if you rest in the truth that God didn't call you based on your character. God called you based on his gracious character. You see, if the call is based on your character, which, by the way, in case you didn't know, I know this from my own experience in my life, which is constantly changing, your character's constantly in flux, then you'd never have any assurance that God's going to keep his promises to you. But if the call is based on God's unchanging, unchangeable character, then you can always know that he will keep his promises to you because it's not dependent on you. And of course, the good news is that God's call and his promises are rooted in his character, not yours. So you can know for certain, for certain, that he will keep all of his promises to you. But the funny thing is, Abraham's not much different than you and I, is he? Like us, he struggled to believe the promise of God in spite of God's gracious call. So what does God do? He graciously reassures Abraham in another way. And what God does is he gives Abraham the covenant. The covenant. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 15. Just flip a few more pages forward. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And he brought him, oh, excuse me. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him 
as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, it's important for us to note where this chapter falls in the, the story of Abraham's life. And if we look at the previous chapter, chapter 14, what we see there is that uh, Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, goes into battle against these kings. And Lot is taken as a prisoner of war. And Abram finds out about it, and he musters up his troops, and he goes in there and he defeats the kings, and he brings Lot back, safe and sound. But now that the dust is settled, and Abraham has time to think, he's thinking to himself, you know what? Those kings might come back and retaliate. And if they kill me now, how is God's promise going to go forward? And so he's questioning God's promise once again. And so knowing that Abraham is struggling, God comes near and reiterates his promise to Abraham again. He says, Abraham, don't worry. I will be your great shield. I will protect you. Don't worry about those kings. And I will be your great reward. And how does Abraham respond? Probably much like we would. He's still got some questions, doesn't he? He says, God, you haven't given me a child yet. So if I die, Eliezer will end up being my heir. But God assures Abraham that Eliezer will not be his heir. His very own son shall be his heir. And notice here, God doesn't smack Abraham around for questioning God, does he? God doesn't show up and say, I'm God, believe me. What's wrong with you, Abraham? That's not what God does. God is patient. One might even say tender with Abraham. And we see this particularly in verses 5 and 6 where God takes Abraham outside and he has him look up at the clear night sky filled with stars and God tells Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believes God. He does. He believes God. 
But then something interesting happens. Even though Abraham believes God, Abraham asks how he can be certain that God will fill his promise. And to our modern ears, God responds in a very odd way. What does God say? He tells Abraham to get a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. It's kind of weird. So Abraham goes and he gets all these animals, and immediately, what does he do? He starts to process them, cutting them in half and laying them on opposite sides of each other so that there's an aisle or a pathway filled with blood between the animals that have been torn in two. Now, it's important to note that God didn't tell Abraham what to do with the animals, did he? God just told him to go get them. So how did Abraham know what to do? You see, in Abraham's day, these were the animals that you would use if you were going to make a serious promise to someone else. If you were going to make a very serious promise, you would get these animals. In our day and age, that's not how we do things, is it? And I'm kind of thankful for that. Although I wonder if the other way is more effective. Nowadays, what do we do? If I'm going to enter into promise, a serious promise with you, what do we do? Let's put it down on paper. Let's write it down. It's not legal until we write it down. Why do we do that? We're a written culture. But you see, in Abraham's day, they weren't a written culture. They were an oral culture. And so since they were in an oral culture, when they wanted to enter into a serious promise with each other, they would act out those serious promises in a type of drama. And here's the drama. The animals were cut in two. The halves were laid on opposite sides of each other. And there was a pathway between the halves, and there was just blood and guts all over the place. And typically, whoever was entering into the covenant, whether both parties or one party, whoever was entering into the promise would walk through those torn animal parts down the aisle. And by doing so, they were saying, if I don't fulfill my promise, may I be torn in two, even as these animals are torn in two. And in ancient times, that was referred to as cutting a covenant. So what Abraham is anticipating here is that God is going to have Abraham walk through the animal halves and promise that he will walk in obedience before the Lord. But that's not what happens. Instead, Abraham essentially passes out into a deep sleep, and then he sees something in a vision that's absolutely shocking. Verse 17 says, that Abraham saw a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passing between these pieces. Now, what does that mean? Do you guys know how God usually in the Old Testament again and again and again manifests his presence? Usually fire and smoke. That's God, that seems to be God's favorite way. In the Exodus, on Mount Sinai, in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, and so on and so forth, God's presence is constantly being shown as smoke and fire. So given that knowledge, who passed through the animal halves? Not Abraham, he's passed out. God did. God's the one who passed through the animal halves. And here's what God is saying to Abraham in that act. He's saying, Abraham, if I fail to keep my promise to you, May I be torn in two, even as these animals are torn in two. But Abraham, even more importantly, if you fail to keep your end of the deal, if you fail to keep your promise to walk before me, I'm going to take your place. And I will be torn in two for your failings, even as these animals are torn in two. 
You see, God is telling Abraham that God's promises are not dependent upon Abraham's obedience. God knows that Abraham is weak and sinful and will fail to keep his end of the covenant. So God says that he will pay the penalty for Abraham's failures. He will pay the penalty. He will bear the covenant curses that Abraham's disobedience will incur. And don't you see, this is the only way that God can enter into a covenant with fallen man. Because in any covenant between God and fallen man, God is always going to keep perfectly his end of the deal. And fallen man is always going to fail on his end of the deal. So can you imagine what comfort this must have brought Abraham? I don't know about you, but this brings me immense comfort. And you know why? Because I fail God all the time. I fail God. I still remember when God really got a hold of me. I was in high school, and I remember it's like my heart melted for the first time over the sacrifice that Jesus had made on my behalf. And I remember how seriously and fervently and zealously I told the Lord, I'm going to spend the rest of my life paying you back for this great love that you've shown me. And you know what? It didn't take me very long to find out that my love for him is so fickle. It's so fickle. Oh, how I love him, but oh, how I fail him. Try as I may, I still fail. And if my only hope of receiving God's promise is if I keep his law and love him perfectly from my heart, then I'm dead where I stand. I'm a dead man. But the good news of God's gracious covenant is that he says he'll do everything, everything that's necessary to save me. And you see, that's the only way that we can know that God will keep his promises. If it's dependent on our performance, our law-keeping, or our heart attitude, then we'll never have assurance. But because God has said, it all depends on me. I'm going to shoulder the responsibility. We can rest. We can have peace. We can have assurance of all of God's promises. But God doesn't stop there. God doesn't stop there. The final way we can know that God will keep his promises is because of the sacrifice, the sacrifice. And if you know anything about Abraham's life or his story, you know that he really struggled to believe that God would give him a son because he was so old and Sarah was barren. But in Genesis chapter 1, we, uh, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 21 rather, we read the happy news that they finally have a baby boy. And what do they name him? They name him Isaac, which means laughter. That's literally what it means. I have a nephew who's named Isaac. And I can almost hear Sarah laughing as she says in verse 6 of chapter 21, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. They're so excited that God has fulfilled his promise. But the laughter and the excitement, unfortunately, is cut short. It's short-lived. Because when Isaac is still just a young man, God decides to put Abraham to the test yet again. And in verse 2 of chapter 22, we read that God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering 
on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, this command just comes out of the blue in our minds, doesn't it? What? The promise is finally fulfilled, and now God is saying, go offer Isaac as a sacrifice? And don't get me wrong, it should shock us. And it should, it, it's, it's horrific. It's a horrific command. But it's not horrific for the reasons that you and I typically think. Typically, we cringe because we think that God is commanding Abraham to outright murder Isaac. But that's not what's happening here. If that was the case, God would just, I mean, Abraham would just walk up to Isaac and stab him to death. But that's not what God is telling Abraham to do. What God is commanding Abraham to do is to sacrifice Isaac, to present him as an offering. And I want you to hear me out on this. This command was not incomprehensible to Abraham. Notice that Abraham doesn't try to argue with God. He does all along the way, but now he stops. Why is that? He simply obeys him. Again, don't get me wrong. Abraham was horrified by it, but this command wasn't incomprehensible to him. Now, why do I say that? Because all throughout the Old Testament, God says again and again and again that the life of the firstborn belongs to him. Whether it's a firstborn animal or a firstborn human The firstborn's life is always forfeit unto God, unless it's redeemed. Let me give you an example of that. You remember uh, in the book of Exodus when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, what's the last plague that God brings upon all the land? He brings the angel of death, right? Darkness comes over the land, the angel of death comes, and the angel of death is to kill all of the firstborn, not just the Egyptians, the Israelites as well, and all the cattle, by the way. The only way that they could be spared is if a lamb was sacrificed in their place and the blood of the lamb was shed over their doorposts and they'd hide in the house. And by the way, the Passover isn't the only place that this is mentioned. It's also mentioned in Exodus 22, Numbers 3, Numbers 8, and in numerous other places. It's a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. So this command made sense to Abraham because he knew that the life of all the firstborn was forfeit. You see, this isn't God giving Abraham some random test of faith. If God came to Abraham and said, for example, Abraham, go offer Sarah as a sacrifice, Abraham would have known that's not God speaking to me, so I'm not going to do that. But this command makes sense to Abraham. Now we have to ask the question, why is the life of the firstborn forfeit? Why is that the case? And here's why. Because all the families of the earth, every family of the earth, owes God a debt for their sins. You see, this is God's way in ancient times of telling all mankind that no one is righteous. No, not one. See, there's a debt of sin that we all have to pay. And we owe it to God for our rebellion against him in Adam in the garden. And what Abraham realizes here is that God is calling in his debt. And so he commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So you see, the real horror isn't ultimately child sacrifice, as horrific as that is. The real horror is Abraham sacrificing his only hope for God to fulfill his promise. 
You see, the command of God to sacrifice Isaac seems to be canceling out the promise of God that through Isaac all the nations would be blessed. How can God bring about both things? How can God be both holy in His command and gracious to keep His promise? How can both of those things coexist? How can God be both just and the justifier? You see, that's the question that was burning in Abraham's breast. And so it breaks Abraham's heart when Isaac asks him, Father, I see the wood and I see the fire, but Father, where's the lamb? And what does Abraham say? My son, you can't see the lamb. And I can't see the lamb. But God will see to the lamb. God will provide the lamb. In essence, what he's saying is, I don't know how God is going to be just and gracious, but I know that he will, Isaac. I trust him. And so Abraham places Isaac, his little lamb, on the wood. And he raises the knife to slay his son, his only son, whom he loved. But God stops him. And God provided a substitute, a ram. God provided. And so Abraham named that mountain, the Lord will provide. But we still have to ask the question, why didn't Abraham have to kill Isaac? He still owed the debt. And we know that the ram that God provided wasn't enough to pay the penalty. Hebrews 10.14 says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For that matter, not even Isaac's blood was enough to pay the penalty. So how is this going to be resolved? You see, the resolution to the story didn't come until centuries later when our Heavenly Father led His only beloved Son into the same mountain range the mountains of Moriah. And the one and only son was put on the wood again. But this time, the son didn't get up until he forfeited his own life. And on that cross, as the truly beloved son cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God paid the penalty that we owed him. He paid the debt of sin And in that moment, Jesus made good on God's promise to be torn in two for our covenant failures so that we wouldn't have to. See, brothers and sisters, we can know that God will keep all of his promises because he did not spare his own son to redeem us. God gave him up for us all. How will he not also, with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? So remember God's calling. He has graciously called you to himself. Remember God's covenant. He will provide all that he requires. And remember God's sacrifice. Jesus, his one and only son, paid it all. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that all the promises of God, all of your promises, find their yes, amen, in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for this picture 
of what Jesus came to do in the life of Abraham. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain to take away our sins. And because he sacrificed his life, because he kept the covenant stipulations perfectly in our place and paid the penalty for all the ways that we've fallen short of your covenant, you have now graciously called us. You have now graciously called us to yourself. And so, Father, we have security with you. We have peace with you. We can know that you want our good and you are able to bring about our good. And so, Father, even in this dark, sinful, fallen world, when it seems like everything is spinning out of control, we can trust your promise. We can trust your promise because we know that you have given up your only son for us. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? So, Father, we come with hearts filled with thanks and gratitude for your great grace. And we ask that as a result, we would be a changed people who walk in holiness because we cling to you through the storms of life and find our great anchor and hope in the promise of your Son, Jesus Christ. We love you, and we ask this all in his name. Amen.